Where does our belief that we can make a difference in the world come from? And what kind of connection with others is necessary to create that difference in a unique way? My guest today helps us delve into those questions. Lena Waith is a writer and an actor whose work was recently heralded with an Emmy Award that she won with her co-star Aziz Ansari for an episode entitled Thanksgiving in the sitcom on Netflix called Master of None. Lena takes our discussion in a variety of what I found to be very interesting directions, from her early conversations with teachers and relatives and right into the fascinating twists and turns of creating award-winning television. The show that she and her colleague were awarded for writing is about the difficult conversations that Lena had as she chose to reveal some of her deepest feelings. This is my conversation with Lena Waith. First off, thank you uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts on conversations. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, aside from being a huge fan of the show, um, you're also doing an incredibly important thing in the world, uh, and my work is about helping people do that. Mm. So it's, uh, it's really cool to, to sit here with you. Well, thank Thanks. you so much for yeah. having me. Yeah, you're, you're, you're more than welcome. So um, you'll be in the first, probably, to be fair, as people look on the podcast page, you'll be up, obviously, in the first 10 or so episodes that we're going to be putting out, cool. uh, and you'll hear on some of these other episodes the opening question for most people, and that was sort of linking together how we grew up, which you'll certainly uh, go into a little bit later, but how we grew up into what we've become, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, when you were a little kid, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a television writer. Um, I was very obsessed with TV as a kid, like maybe most kids are, uh, but I really was at any given moment or time of day, you could find me plopped in front of the television set. Yeah. And But really absorbing it, really studying it, watching everything from, I was very lucky to grow up during the time when the Cosby show was on, <laughs> um, at its height actually. Uh, but also watching A Different World and watching old TV shows with my grandmother, like, you know, Columbo and like Mary Tyler Moore show and Dick Van Dyke show. So for me, I kind of had a mix of things that were current and on at the moment, but I also got a chance to watch old television shows that like All in the Family as well and Jeffersons right. and Good Times and Different Strokes. I got to watch those television shows that really um, I still got a kick out of and I still thought was were quite funny and entertaining. And so very early on, I knew... I wanted to make television that wasn't just funny and interesting for the time, but was actually timeless. So mm -hmm. very early on, I knew I wanted to be a part of that world and um, because it, it fascinated me so much and I got so much joy from it. I, wa I wanted to be a part of it. Got it. Got it. So, so what did you do? Where did, it, where did it begin to take real shape for you, other than obviously being a fan of a lot of great shows? Mm -hmm. Do you remember as you grew older where it kicked where it kicked into pursuing work. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was in, well, I've always sort of been, I've always loved writing, um, and I always was complimented on that by teachers, even in elementary school. So I always knew that that was something, I, a, a gift that I had. 
But when I got into high school and I got really, really obsessed with certain TV shows, then I, when I was high school, I was watching Friends and things like that and really just being obsessed with like Law & Order, SVU and all that kind of stuff. So like really watching those shows and thinking about what I would do with those characters hmm. and, and things like that. But then when I went to college, I went, decided to go to Columbia College in Chicago, mm-hmm. which is really an arts sort of school and which was a real, I think, commitment to chasing my dream because that's the kind of school you go to when you really want to study your craft and, and learn it. And I wasn't ready to leave Chicago yet. So I figured, well, this school is right in my own backyard and, and I could actually major in writing and producing a television, which is what I did. So I think the thing for me was it really sort of became clear when it became time to pick a school um, to really further my education that would really, you know, because when you go to college, it does have a huge impact on what happens after that in your life. Yep. And so I, that's really when I made the decision when I was in high school. I was like, I want to go to Columbia um, and I want to study art. Uh, and and I went there and I was there for all four years and yeah. had a wonderful experience. And then then I came out to Los Angeles and, and really started, uh, you know, hit the ground running. Got it. So so as I, as I told you before we started uh, recording here, you know, the theme, the concept, the through line, the purpose of this show is to help listeners think about the, the really fundamental role in one's life that conversations, just like you and I are having mm-hmm. without the microphones, right. uh, but that conversations turn people's lives. That's, yeah. the, that's why it's called Tell Me What to Say, because people come to me mm-hmm. wanting to know what to say, but it's actually what they come up with, right? right. Their creativity, their uh, leadership, whatever it may be. My mm-hmm. point is that um, can you think back in those formative at Columbia College and all the rest, mm-hmm. is there a conversation that you had uh, g- going toward your career goal? Do you remember with a teacher or a friend mm-hmm. that, that immediately comes to your mind's eye as you, as you think about this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a particular professor, his name is Michael Fry, um, who was at Columbia when I was there, who I really fought to get in his class because he he was like one of the most famous teachers there because he wrote on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was an intern at the Cosby Show. He was like one of those people that, um, he also wrote on the Parenthood, which was a show Robert Townsend did. Mm -hmm. So he really had experience in, in the industry and I was eager to learn from him. So I got in his class and a lot of the conversations he and I had were about you know, the business, you know, he would tell us about his experience and how he was like, I was on top of the world one day. And then the next day I was like, okay, what well, I need a job or everything sort of dried up. So I remember those conversations about him saying, look, it's cyclical. And, and it's one minute you're like on a hit TV show and then it goes away and you're kind of back at square one. So I remember hearing him be talking to us about being very cautious of that, about never feeling safe and never, um, you know, resting on your laurels. And I remember that very much. But also I remember we had to write spec scripts in the class. And mm. spec scripts are pretty much like you take a show and you act as if you're a writer on the show and you write a script for that show. Um, and so I remember writing a spec script for girlfriends in his class and him at the end of the class, him saying, look, I never give out A's because that's not like what I do. But, you know, if you get, you know, a B or C, you should be really happy about it or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so as we sort of all got our... Our, our scripts back 
I saw that he had given me an A. Oh. And I was like, oh, man. And he looked at me, sort of like winked and said, like, you know, you should really go out to Los Angeles and give it a shot. You've got something. And I remember that having a big impact on me. And, and I'm still in communication with him. I, he, when he comes out to Los Angeles, he and I always connect. And he obviously was texting me before and after Sunday. And, right. You know, he's someone that really, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget that conversation about him really saying or seeing something in me. Um, and and that in those years, uh, really gave me the confidence I needed right. to to really come out here and really pursue the dream. That's great. Yeah. Well, your story sort of perfectly, pretty perfectly exemplifies sort of why I do the work. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, and for people who are listening, you know, it's so interesting when you talk about important conversations in people's lives. It's obviously with a in an intimate way, but but I bet seven out of ten over my time are pointed to teachers that influenced mm. us. And watching you tell that, I could see you seeing, you know, that really mm-hmm. happening in oh, front yeah. of you. And it sticks with you today. Absolutely. And the, and the whole point that I try to make is we can't do that on email. It was nice of him to text. Oh, yeah. But you see, my point is that no, is yeah. that if you're really going to have a conversation, something that matters to you, yeah. you've got to connect in Absolutely. person. And oh, that, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of in person, um, so I, what, what, how I was exposed to you as a, as a, as a fan of the show, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go in and IMDB when the first show started coming on. Mm-hmm. So I knew you as Denise, mm-hmm. right? As the friend. Right. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you have a distinctive presence on the screen, uh, as you all do in your own way on the mm-hmm. show. But um, when did the acting come in? Because you talked about going and pursuing and being encouraged Right. How did the how did the, the the acting obviously which got the first attention for you right, right? yeah um, um, I always give credit to Allison Jones who is a, a famed casting director I'm out here she's cast Freaks and Geeks she cast Bridesmaids Veep I mean some mm. you name it like she's phenomenal um, and so she was brought on to cast Aziza's show um, and he sort of did a very unconventional thing where he said well. Before we bring people in to read scripts, he asked her, he said, can you just send me interesting people mm. like to, to meet with? And, um, and for, by the grace of God, she, she mentioned my name and she said, you should meet Lena Waithe. And that became, she knew me because she like read something about me or saw me do something or, or something. I Actually, I, I, I'd love to have Allison like. <laughs> Tell me what it was. What was it? Yeah, right. I don't. I, I've heard a couple different things, but anyway, she became aware of me, um, and obviously, I wasn't acting or anything. So she became aware of me. I think as a writer, ah. and um, I was I, I was in Minneapolis. We were producing Dear White People at the time, and I got a call from my then manager that said, "Hey, Allison Jones wants to meet with you." I did not know who she was. I'm not super familiar with casting directors' names, and he said she's a really famous casting director and he was like I think you should meet with her I said well why would I'm not casting anything right now I'm not he's like no but like she just wants to have a general with you so I came back to Los Angeles went and met with her literally the next day and she just you know we had a really lovely conversation about obviously she has fantastic taste in in television and we talked about TV talked about my growing up and then she just sort of asked if I had any aspirations of acting and I said Mm. no I I, I don't no and um I said, I was like, I'm a, I'm a writer. And she goes, okay, well, I think you should, you know, think about it or I'd love to bring you in for some things. And so I said, well, okay. Yeah. And, um, and she did. She brought me in for an episode of Veep. She brought me in for the Amy Schumer movie that ultimately became um, Trainwreck. And then she brought me in for um, the second season of The Comeback. 
um, which was a favorite show of mine. It was short-lived on HBO. And then because, but because it was so popular and sort of generated a cult following, they brought, back, brought it back 10 years later. Um, so I got a call from her to say, hey, come in and read for the comeback. I did. I booked that part. It's a small, tiny part on the comeback. And, um, and then one day I got a call that said, hey, they'd like me to go to Aziz Ansari's house. Um, and I was like, okay. Um, and I did. I went to his house and sat with him and Alan Yang. And again, I didn't know anything about the show. Didn't know he had a show on Netflix. I was just very out of the loop. I just knew I was going to sit with him. And it obviously must have been an acting opportunity because it came from Allison Jones's office. Right. But I, I didn't know anything about it. So I just went and sat with him, with those guys, and just sort of talked about my life. And I'd recently met and fallen in love with Alana, so I talked about that. I just talked about going, being from Chicago. I was just like, we were just sort of shooting the shit. And, um, and then I got a call saying he wanted me to read with him. Uh, and I went and I did that. Then we did that at Allison's office and she recorded it. And from the moment we read together, there was something very instinctive and magical and right. really cool about just our voices. Yep. Like meshing together. So um, and then I came in for another call, call back and then we did a test and him and Alan called me and offered me the part. Wow. So that's really how that happened. I mean, he was being very unconventional about the casting process, which actually makes sense. I know Aziz and Alan a little bit better. Um, and then Allison, for some reason, when they said an interesting person, she thought of me, and I'm just really grateful. And I wouldn't be on the show, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Allison um, telling them about me. Yeah. Did you always think you were unconventional? Right. I mean, it's such a great word to describe so much. I, you know what? I don't think that I use that word. I think I always thought I was unique. I think I always thought I was a little different. Um, but. I think maybe being a little bit more embedded in the industry, I've realized oh, I'm unconventional compared to everyone else around me. But just in my life, being around my friends, it's thought like, okay, there's, I guess there's something about me. But you don't think about that. You right. don't think of yourself in those terms. And so, but compared to other people in the game right. and seeing that like people are saying, no, you're different. You're you're a breath of fresh air, or you're special. Um, I think that comes once you've sort of been in your field for a yeah. bit and people can kind of say, well, you stand out for this reason. Right. Um, but before that, I never didn't think anything Thought of it. Thought of it. Yeah. But now we segue to the, to the show, to the show. Mm -hmm. uh, episode, uh, it's an episode in the second season. Yep. Called, episode eight. Called Epstick. <laughs> you've never had to figure that one, huh? No. So, so called Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to Thanksgiving. The, I'm always curious now what you're going to do for next Thanksgiving. But, <laughs> but, but um, it is about difference. Mm -hmm. And it is about bridging differences. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I got to say and put in the parentheses here through conversations. True. So uh, certainly some of that was dramatic license that you had to take for the writing of the show. But there is such a clear theme that you took unconventional, uh, an unconventional way, uh, a different way of looking at the world as you grew up, at mm -hmm. least depicted from using your imagination about Jennifer Aniston to the whole process mm -hmm. of how you talk to your friend about it and all the rest. Mm -hmm. As you thought about those conversations, right, and then needed to re-depict them uh, mm -hmm. for the show, um, how did you go about not the writing process, but what happened to make all that come forth into that, what, 30 minutes, right? How did you, how did you get there? 
Um, well, it all really started from me going to New York to visit uh, the writers' room, in which Alan and Aziz were were running at the time to just sort of talk to them about my life and like what was going on, which is what we always do. We we sort of use our lives um, as fodder for the show. So I had been very mindful of that and coming into season two and just taking little notes about little things that I thought could be funny or could make cool, for cool anecdotes in an episode. So I thought I was pretty prepared when I walked in and, and I told them all these different things and they were really liking it. And then Alan Yang, uh, who's the co-creator of the show, said, well, how did you come out? And I proceeded to tell them stories about talking to my mom and, you know, and what that was like and how it was a process and what kind of kid I was and me being a tomboy and it, and I sort of told them the journey, you know, just by myself. So I always say I did sort of a one-woman show version of the episode um, in the writer's room with them. And they really were sort of fascinated by it, And, and I, but I didn't think anything of it. And then when I went back to my hotel room, they called me and said, "That's the, we want to do an episode about that. And I said, oh, okay. How'd that feel? It felt like it was a little surprising, because I, I guess I've never thought of my coming out story as that, I don't know, fascinating or interesting. I know it was a little unique, um, but I, I just I never thought about telling that story or being because I always thought we were very much in the here and now. So we've never gone back in time oh. and done that kind of thing. So that's why I was sort of surprised. I was like, huh, well, how's that going to work? But luckily, Anise, um, I'm sorry, who was Aziz's younger brother, came up with the idea of sort of telling it through a series of Thanksgivings, which kind of we could play with time. And then Aziz was like, you got to help write it. And I was like, what? I, not that I wasn't like flattered, but I had so much on my plate. I mean, at the time, I was, I was going to go to London to film a movie. I was still trying to get my Showtime show greenlit to series. So I was, you know, I was had a full plate. And, and I also trust those guys. I, I, I could tell them anything and they could turn it into a Master of None episode. And I'd feel proud of it and honored to, to, to do it. So, but I think they just felt like it was so specific to me. Um, and because the story was so personal, they were like, you have to, your hands need to be in it. So I then agreed. I said, okay. And, um, and then ultimately, because again, my schedule took me to London and Aziz came to London to write it, and we wrote it in three days in a hotel room, and um, and it was just an amazing experience. You know, he we passed the laptop back and forth. There were certain scenes in which he like even left the room for me, like the coming out scene, um, a couple other scenes, the, the dining room table, um, and you know, the first time around experiencing it, it was not fun per se because it was every the stakes were so high. I was not super confident as to what the outcome was going to be mm. it was not a fun time in my life but 10 years later writing it and being you know in a very successful position I was able to have some perspective and I was able to really understand my mother's side of it a little bit better and that's what the process of writing it really was for me is understanding what it was like for my family to have to deal with something that they never talked about understood, dealt with, um, because I think at the time I wasn't as sensitive to it. I think at the time I was really frustrated and just wanted to be accepted and didn't want to make a big deal of it. But in writing it, I realized, oh, that is a big deal. Like, that's not something they know anything about. They're very uncomfortable with it. And, and, and not unlike in real life, it's a process to accept it, to have, have a better understanding of it, um, or to not even have an understanding of it, but just to be able to embrace it and understand it even if yep. it's not, not something you you know have a lot of experience with so for me it was a learning process and one in which I had a, 
I, I really gained a lot more perspective from not just me coming out, but what it's like for people that are being come out too. Yeah. So that's really how it sort of all was born. It was very organic, um, and I'm just really happy with the way the process went of making it. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, then enter Melina, enter Angela Bassett, and all these amazing people that then really brought this piece of work to life. Yeah. So let's go to what appeared to me to be obviously the diner conversation. Mm -hmm. So when people watch the show, which of course everybody needs to, you know, subscribe uh, to to Netflix mm -hmm. and and check this check this one out specifically. We're going to let the siren go by here. Mm -hmm. This is in this is in real time Los Angeles. Yeah, man. Uh, the 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 the, <clears throat> the question I have is number one: Was it in a diner? Yeah, it was. It was. Where mm -hmm. you talked to your mom? Yeah. And as you watched, so you wrote it, mm -hmm. and then you watched it. Mm -hmm. What do you remember feeling? And in essence, I talk about people telling their voice in their head. Right. Do you remember what your voice in your head was saying as, well, first off, as you were having the conversation? Yeah, in, 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 real, in the real life. In real life, life yeah. with, at, um, the, at the real know, life. Um, I think... It was the, the I, I was just sort of like surprised that I even had to come out. I think that was the thing, because I think I was so I've never not been myself. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, that was the biggest thing that I was sort of raging against, or I was like, I was so confused as to how my family didn't know, or like why they were confused. Like that was the thing that was in my head. That was like. I was mad that I had to actually come out. Hmm. Um, You're mad there in the diner. I was I was frustrated. Yeah, um, and I wrote that into the dialogue mm -hmm. um, because that was and that's what's so funny. I took my inner dialogue and put it <laughs> there. In you go, the character's right. mouth. But at the time, that's I was really frustrated. I was like, it can't couldn't be more evident. But the thing is, is that which I know as a queer person in the world is that it's a rite of passage. You don't. It doesn't matter how masculine identifying I was or if you're a man who, who was very effeminate it doesn't matter you have to say the words you have to you have to say it you have to own it you have to say it to your you have to say it to your family um and I think that was the biggest thing for me as I was rebelling against that I didn't I didn't want to have to do that hard thing it's not mm -hmm. easy it's very difficult and I and I just felt like it was so obvious that I was a gay person and I was like why do I have to explain this to them and um but I think again my learning process and writing is that, but I, that is a part of my job, unfortunately. Um, like I do have to explain, I do have to have the, the conversations because if I don't, they'll be left in the dark. They won't understand. And, and I can't always be explaining and try to make right. them understand everything. I, I can't do that, but it is, it, it, it comes with the territory, um, whether I like it or not. And I wasn't a fan of it at the time. And I've gotten, I'm much better about it now. I, it. I'm, I'm happy to educate. I'm happy to answer questions now. But I think at the time I was very rebellious and really frustrated by it. Yeah, There was some for, a way maybe for you to think about this going forward or for the listener. There was some really interesting uh, sociology study, you know, research that was done at Stanford a few years ago where they couldn't they were they were confused or concerned in the research as to why people couldn't get things. Mm. Why when someone knew something. Uh -huh. Why was it? Why were they hitting the wall of trying to explain to someone what was so obvious? Right. Just like you just said. Right. And here's what they found. I won't go through the whole study, 
but they developed something called the curse of knowledge. Hmm. And what that means, and what I think, if I may, with all due respect, what you were going through in that diner, or at least a version of it, was that you had forgotten what it was like to not know it. Mm-hmm. Hang with me on this. Your, of course you knew it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You'd lived it, you'd <clears throat> wrestled with it, you'd shared it with your f- friends, your right, sister, right, right. What, however it worked, and you had it. And what frustrates people mostly in conversations, this happens in gotcha. sports a lot, why can't they just run the play, right? Mm-hmm. Well, people don't know, the people who don't know what it's like, mm-hmm. don't have your experience. And I'm not by any means critiquing you, but one of the lessons I hope in its own way that I hope the listener and the viewer of your show comes away with is that it's really about helping the other person understand, right? Not just being right yourself. Mm. Right. And you did in the episode. That's Mm. what's so great about it. You really helped the, the character, your mom, Mm. right? work through it and understand it on her terms, as difficult as those were for her. And I thought you beautifully, really portrayed the curse of knowledge and that people wrestle with on an ongoing basis. Well, well, that's very helpful. That's really beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing. And now I want to get to sort of how how you deal with this in general. Um, Mm. Because at the heart of certainly the work that I get to do. It's never about easy things. Mm -hmm. Changing a company is not an easy thing. Becoming a leader of an organization is not an easy thing. People wish it was, Mm -hmm. but anything worth doing, as you know, is not easy. So the theme really here for me, and one of the reasons I really pushed um, to get to, even before the award, right? Mm -hmm. We set this up weeks ago, uh, was to get a sense of somebody who is now very deliberately, both in the way they carry themselves, the way they communicate, and the conversations that they both write, and then I'm sure have in the world, the pursuit of making a difference. Mm -hmm. Important conversations make a difference. I'm beating the drum on that, right? Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, as you have these difficult conversations, Mm -hmm. right, both in real life, and then also, obviously, in this beautiful depiction on the show, mm-hmm. how do you stay to it? How do you, so some people say, what happens, you know, don't you sometimes just want to stop, right? And, and just, just quit the fight. Mm-hmm. But watching your speech the other night, you were clearly energized. You talked about the cape mm-hmm. of being, you know, put on your, your in essence, super person Super skills. So mm-hmm. you are obviously in this for a fight. Mm-hmm. What keeps you motivated to deal with all of the obvious difficulty and adversity, right? What's in the heart and the head behind this? Well, I think I come from, look, I think black people in this country have no choice but to be survivors, educators, to always be resilient. You know, I, I, it's, I never... Our history in this country is never far away from our brain in terms of my ancestors and how they were brought over to this country, how they helped build it, fought wars for it, um, helped make it what what this country is. So for me, as an artist who has a platform, I think it's important that 
I maintain that tradition of making art that is not only entertaining, but informs, that humanizes, that um, makes people feel validated, like they're seeing themselves. And that's the bigger picture for me, um, is to inspire, is to remind people who are othered, um, who, which I think, who I think they, they need that reminder the most, that our lives are just as valid, our voices deserve to be heard as anyone else, as much as anyone else, and that you know it's not going to be easy for us. We're going to have to fight. We're going to have to stand up for ourselves, and we're going to have to do it with a level of elegance that most people don't have to. So um, I think our you know former president Barack Obama is a prime example of that. So that's the bigger thing for me. Yes, I write television. Yes, I write comedy. Yes, I have a really cool gig. But for me, there is a bigger purpose that I'm serving. And I I do believe that I am the epitome of my ancestors' wildest dreams. And they are never far from my mind. I'm, you know, always thinking of them and always mindful of the bloodline from which I step forth. So that's what keeps me motivated. That's what keeps me fighting. That's what keeps me reminding those young people who may be queer, people of color, maybe women, um, to say that, you know, your crowns have been paid for and we should wear them proudly. Mm. Wow. So one more question. Mm. So you got a standing ovation the other night. Mm. More, I think, it sort of felt like when they always had that you know, that honorary winner come out on the Oscars and, you know, you had to stand up. But what my wife, we were watching you last last night after we watched a show and what she noted was people rose in waves. Mm. I don't know if you caught that up there, but first they started and then your friends stood up Mm. and at least the way the camera covered it is it it happened. So obviously my point before I get to my question Mm. is you you got one of the few standing ovations of the night. Mm Uh, that must have been something to to stand it there and thrilling and, and watch, right? Thrilling. But the question I have in the spirit of that mm-hmm. is fair or unfair. I'm going to ask. Why do you think you won? Because those are great shows that you mm, that you absolutely. that you beat, right? Absolutely. Why do you? Why did they pick? What was it about you and Aziz and this moment that made them? in a weird industry, as you know, mm-hmm. they grabbed onto you and they stood. What was it? What is it? You know, um, I can only speculate, you know, but I think there was something about it because even though my story is very specific to, about me being a gay, young, black girl trying to grapple with my sexuality and my identity and trying to find acceptance within my family, that's what, that's, the specificity of the story but I think there's also something about what it means to be the odd duck what it means to be you know not feel at home at home and not and to feel different in your own clan and I think there's something about people in, the, in this town this industry that they all feel that they don't have to be gay they don't have to be a person of color they don't have to be a woman but I think there's something about this town and all of us that we've we felt a little weird at our dining room table, you know, or we've felt, you know, like there was always something different about us. And um and and I think that people just 
I think I was just really speaking from the heart. I think Aziz and I both really just, it came from such a pure place. And and again, it was very specific. I, I If I'm going to tell that story, I can only tell it the way I remember it. And, you know, and also, also incorporating those conversations at the, at, the, at the the dinner table at Thanksgiving, which were very specific to my house, but I'm sure that there were there are those conversations that happen at dinner tables all over the country about race, about what's happening in the news, and your you know your aunt and your mom having difference of opinion about certain things. But I kind of feel like ultimately there's something that people latched on to it about it because they saw themselves in me, um, and um, and that to me is such a huge honor and a privilege and as I was doing the Emmy parties and things like that leading up to the to Sunday night so many artists that I respect and love were coming up to me and were just like you know some some straight some gay some white some black uh, men and women just saying I I, I know that or I've, I felt that or that episode really touched me and or your vulnerability really touched me um, I think that I think that people are hungry for stories like that yeah. and you don't often get them and I think when you do, that it just it just feeds a part of your soul that that's starved. Yeah. Well, it does. Oh no, no that 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 <laughs> sounds absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, and I got to note that what you just described was from the people coming up to you mm-hmm. and the way that you approached it and sitting with Aziz in the hotel room in London mm-hmm. and all the rest were just it it could have been done no way, no other way than face to face. And, you know, good eye contact mm. and all the things that I try to, when people say, tell me what to say, mm. that's, that's, what we, that's what we strive for. And they want a bunch of bells and whistles around it. Mm. But it's got to come down to the expression and the reception of real, genuine emotion and, and meaning. Mm-hmm. And of all the things I've seen in a long time, and I've been watching TV longer than you have, right? Mm. Uh, you, you you folks nailed it in, oh, wow. uh, in such a such a great way. So I Thank lied. You. I got one more question. You, okay. you know, I'd ask this: What are you doing on Thanksgiving? This Thanksgiving, what's yeah. it gonna? Who's really at the table? Well, you or, know, it's funny. Uh, Alana and I are gonna go to Japan for Thanksgiving. <sighs> It'll be our first Thanksgiving together. Um, she often goes home to Cleveland. I, I right. used to stay ba- stay back and kind of house hop. So it'll be our first. Thanksgiving together, and we'll, we'll, and she 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 has a very close friend that lives in Japan, right. um, and I've never been, so we're gonna go, and we're not gonna have a traditional Thanksgiving, but <laughs> right. we're gonna go, and we're gonna spend time with friends, and right. um, we're gonna stay at the you know the famous hotel from Lost in Translation, yeah, and yep. so and we're just gonna you know Park Hyatt, have right. a, yeah, we're gonna have a sure. really you know good time and That's hang out, and hopefully make some some Thanksgiving memories of our own. That's great, yeah. Congratulations, Thank Lena, you so, so, so much for, for, for being here. Uh, you, you just told a very important set of stories and provided some very, very, hopefully, key guidance for people who are trying to make a difference with their life. Mm. And um, I'm humbled by being around it. It's what I try to do in my own way. And uh, you, have, you have struck out way out in front of, of some really important issues for us today. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to tell me what to say. If you like this podcast, remember to subscribe on your podcast service. And if you really like it, that is really like it, give it the highest rating you can, because that will help the cause toward better conversations. 
For more information about the work that I do, please visit drewkugler.com. And for more background about the show and its guests, you can go to kuglercast.com. Until next time, this is Drew Kugler.